Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 179. In this episode, we're talking about faith and fake news with Rachel Whiteman. Rachel Whiteman is Associate Director of Instruction and Outreach at Concordia University St. Paul's Library, and she's also the author of the book that we're excited to talk about today, Faith and Fake News, A Guide to Consuming Information Wisely, published by Airdmans. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Stanley Ng and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So this conversation with Rachel Whiteman was a blast. We got into a lot of matters pertaining to misinformation, disinformation, strategies for how to think about uh, our engagement online, the nature of our media landscape and social media and all these things, even chat GPT and algorithms and just a a very full and rich conversation. Uh, Stan, what were some of the takeaways that you had from our conversation with Rachel? Our conversation with Rachel today was pretty encompassing in terms of just touching upon so many different things, um, just surrounding information. As we were navigating through a world where all this technology is so accessible to us, and whether it's as simple as turning on the TV, um, I don't know, I, I, I don't know who still has a cord in these days, um, but that to just watching things on our phones and how information can easily spread through long videos, short videos, and everything in between. Um, it's It was a very enriching conversation, a very full conversation, but also a, a very eye-opening conversation, especially as we navigate a lot of the questions of what can we do now, especially with all this already out there and we're now just moving towards an era where there's just more of this coming our way if you haven't already please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review you can also follow us on twitter facebook instagram or visit us at our website at the twocities.com and with that here's our conversation with rachel whiteman Well, Rachel, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, good to be with you again. Well, it's wonderful to talk with you. We had you on um, the podcast for episode 40 on uh, on, on fake news. Uh, and this was before uh, your new book, uh, which, which is just coming out, before it was written. So we're excited to talk specifically about your book, Faith and Fake News. I thought as a way to get going, how how about we hear about how the media landscape has changed from the last time uh, that we had you on our podcast, which was in 2020, right before the elections? Uh, great question. Um, good to good to be chatting with you again. Um, I am glad you reminded me that it was in 2020 because I was also like, when was that? Um, you know, in some ways, it feels like not a lot has changed um, in terms of the work that I've been doing with churches and um, kind of talking through these concepts around um, misinformation. And and so in some ways it doesn't feel like it's changed that much, right? Like we still have an abundance of information that's coming at us all the time through social media um, and news and all of the different platforms. And at the same time, there are things that have changed. Um, Even just in the last few months, I think we're hearing, at least in my space in higher education, 
We're hearing a lot about um, AI and chat GPT. Um, so certainly that has changed a lot. Um, I admit, so I, in my personal life, I also had a baby around the time I wrote the book. Um, and so I actually took a pretty big step back from um, some of my own social media for a while, just from, you know, being a new parent. And I, a, another thing I've noticed, which is kind of a smaller thing um, than like AI, um, I've noticed in social media, especially there's been a huge shift towards more um, video content um, and images and um, th even things like Instagram, which was, um, is generally was historically very um, image based is now way more in videos. Um, and so I think that also changes the nature of our platforms and what people expect um, as that there's been this shift towards different kinds of media coming at us. You know, um, I think there's still a lot coming at us. It's just coming at us in slightly different venues, potentially more multimedia. Um, and then also this artificial intelligence piece around where is this information getting created? Who's creating it or what's creating it um, is also shifting. I'd say that's in the process of shifting, um, definitely. And so those are two things I can think of. Um, maybe you can think of others. Um, but like I said, I think that the overall premise of having a lot of things coming at us is the same. It's just maybe the avenues in which they're coming. There's just different ways that's happening. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. How about how did we get into the media landscape that we are currently in, in terms of like a kind of historical set of like events or trajectories? And obviously, the advent of like the internet and social media um, is that really like what it boils down to? Or are there like precursors, perhaps, or other things that we could point to to just sort of see a trajectory of how we got to this kind of age of misinformation and disinformation? Yeah, I think. And we probably talked about this a little bit last time, but certainly um, the internet has is a big part of it, right? Like having the internet and access to so much information has been part of this trajectory that we've been on. Um, but in addition to just like the advent of the internet, which I remember, you know, being in like high school and like using like really, or even middle school, like really early um, search engines that look nothing like Google today. Um, but you know, over the course of time, we've also had a big shift in how people access information, even in the sense of like, we many of us own cell phones that are basically like little computers. Um, and certainly that has changed the traje trajectory of that. Um, it was really interesting when I was um, re re doing some research for my book and just looking for some additional materials. Um, a couple of things that kind of stuck out to me was the, the shift in how we use social media. Um, came up a lot. Originally, social media was just like early Facebook days was like literally connecting with friends and um, people you really knew in person. And it was also happening at a time we didn't have like texting at the same way we do now, right? Like there wasn't that same ability to text someone. Um, and so as phones changed and texting changed, and then these platforms also changed. And now on social media, we can follow tons of content creators that we may never have met in person. And I think that whether that's, it's probably a chicken and the egg kind of situation, whether it was the platform that changed or like how we interact change, I'm not, I'm not really sure. Um, but certainly those things I think have also put us on this trajectory. And then also when I was, I was looking at some other resources when I was writing my book, um, 
I also came across a lot of research that talked about like the history of conspiracy theories and misinformation and that those are actually not very new. Um, and I think sometimes people think like, oh, with all these changes in technology and media and information, we now have more conspiracy theories or more misinformation. Um, but that's not necessarily the case. Those things have always existed. And ironically, one of the, the books that I was reading um, kind of made the argument that every time there was a change in technology in general, there was a, an increase. So when the printing press was invented, then there was the possibility for more misinformation that way um, than with radio, right? Or so like as these technologies of communication were created, then there was like a, a burst of more misinformation. So um, I think that was something I've been thinking about a lot too. And I, I'm not a communications expert, um, but I do think that was helpful for me even just to like remind myself that this isn't like a new phenomenon. It's just different. And the ways in which misinformation can spread has changed with social media, because that's kind of where we are right now, um, or one of the big pieces about how we gather information right now. But certainly in the past, that was also the case just with different modes of communication and technology. Yeah, it's it's so funny how you brought up just historic the historical side of things. Um, you know, I remember using Ask Jeeves and 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 uh, yeah, I mean when Facebook was first up and running, that's that was near when I was about to attend college, and you had to you had to be a verified college student or some sort of EDU account or something, the email address. I remember I remember all that very very vividly, and just. Um, and me being in K-12 and just seeing the widespread uh, usage of social media across the students, um, you know, one question that comes to mind is just uh, in terms of your research and what you've investigated um, so far, how do you see social media kind of connecting with one another and kind of, do you ever see like a war between even the social media platforms in terms of how information is, um, is delivered? Um, I know, I mean, I know that this is probably on the lighter side, but um, I always get made fun of for my students because I watch, uh, I guess, Instagram reels or something, but those are just really um, two or three day old TikToks or something. So I mean, I mean, from, from, from that perspective, I can imagine, okay, sure. A funny cat video or a dog video, but, but in terms of information now and going to like the dangers of all this, especially the things that you've been researching, uh, how are they connected? How are they against, and what have you seen and noticed uh, in your research? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. And, um, Kind of ironic because I, I mean, I work with college students and I definitely work with older returning students, but I also work with just like traditional 18 year old college students. And sometimes we get into these conversations about um, social media or, you know, how they're engaging with it. So we definitely see some of the similar things that you mentioned around um, TikTok and Instagram reels and where they're going for, for content. Um, so that is certainly one of the things I'm noticing is just how different groups of people use particularly social media platforms um, and how like my college students that I work with will the traditional college students will talk about things like TikTok. Um, and then when I might do, so I also do workshops with churches around this, around some of the similar content that's in my book. And what I might notice there is if it's a little bit older population, they're more likely to ask me specific questions about Facebook. Um, and so definitely seeing just generationally, I think there's just differences in how people are accessing information. Um, 
so that is one thing I definitely have just noticed overall is just different groups of people by age are generally using slightly different um, uh, platforms. And then the other thing I've been noticing is that even though people are accessing maybe information in different ways, like younger students might be using TikTok and some older folks might be using Facebook, there is still this sense that I don't know that people are always noticing where the information originated from, right? Like I hear like, I saw this on TikTok. I saw this on Instagram. I saw this on Facebook. But is that where the information started, right? Like if this is a news story that came from a news outlet, that's where it came from. But everyone's associating the information with the platform that they found it on or saw it, um, basically, or watched. A lot of my students also talk a lot about YouTube. Um, So I'm also hearing a lot about um, content that people are watching on YouTube. Um, And so that's the other thing I'm noticing is that it's like the the content creators, I feel like are still not always recognized. It's just, we associate what we saw with the platform. And that's where I think in terms of what you're asking around, like the dangerous part of all of this is like, we're disassociating the information from where who created it and we're associating it instead with a platform and ultimately a company right that has money they're trying to youtube is trying to make money um you know they're not necessarily in the business of saying like here's the best information um and so that's another pattern i'm noticing i'm, I'm not sure if that exactly answers your question but those are some of the things i'm seeing around social media and platforms and and how people are using them and what might be missing a little bit well, thanks for that, Rachel. And um, I guess as a follow up to, um, you know, regarding just not just how social media, um, different social media outlets are intertwined, connected or at odds with each other and how it's used. But, um, you know, another thing that I'm noticing, too, is <clears throat> even on YouTube, as you've mentioned, there there are these full videos and there are these shorts as well. Right. And um, I in particular, I guess, uh, when we see sometimes big, let's say council meetings or some sort of Senate meeting is broadcast or recorded, but then all you see all the time, like, what do people see more of? They don't, they don't watch the entire, like, hour long, two hour long meetings. They, what they look at are these little snippets, these shorts and whatnot as well. And, um, you know, we're, I feel like there's, there has to be some sort of data or some sort of correlation in terms of, um, in terms of usage. And I'm just wondering, just from your own research as you're, uh, as you have written this book, um, have you noticed any, um, I guess, any connections in between, you know, what people access, what people's preferences are, and how that affects decision making, um, and how people are receiving information, whether true or not? Um, you know what? That's a great question. And I'll be honest, I haven't spent a lot of time necessarily researching that. But I do think there is certainly in our culture, even just anecdotally, what we see, right, is kind of what you're saying around these like snippets and people responding to those snippets and not the full story. And that's another thing I so kind of related to that, that I talk about in my book is the idea of noticing our emotions, because those small pieces that you mentioned are often very emotional, um, emotionally driven. That's how they get shared. That's why people are like, oh my gosh, this happened. I'm going to share this, you know, video or this tweet or whatever. Um, and that's part of how misinformation can spread. And there's a lot of data around 
um, misinformation, being emotionally charged and spreading more quickly. There's a study that I've seen multiple times around misinformation spreading faster on social media than truth. Um, and I think I think a lot of that comes down to that emotional content that comes from those snippets. So those like little pieces that people watch, those sound bites they hear are often very emotional. And then they respond out of that emotion um, as opposed to pausing and like noticing, A, noticing their emotion and wondering and being curious about that. Um, and also not taking the time to like get the full context before they share it. Um, and so that that's kind of related, I think, is what I'm seeing around the research around emotions and misinformation and this, like, I think those snippets are, or whatever you said, those smaller pieces generally are highly emotional because if they get shared, probably we're going to see more ads when we go look at it. And that's how those companies can make money. Um, so there's a lot of factors that go into that, but that's one of the things I'm seeing. Yeah, the the kind of financial incentive to create misinformation makes sense with certain types of media, like with the snippets where there might be advertising or whatever. But what about some of these memes that, you know, it doesn't seem like anyone's going to experience any financial benefit from them. Why do you think, you know, some of these types of, um, you know, short misinformation type um, media are created? Do you think that this is like just trolling, you know, people just like to see the world burn. They like to, you know, kind of stir, stir the pot. Or do you think this is like, you know, are these like apologists for whatever cause and they, they're willing to, you know, distort the truth because they want their side to look, look good. What do you, what do you think is motivating that? Especially when it's not financially or doesn't seem to be financially uh, incentivized. Yeah, I would guess from what I've seen is that I still think a lot of it is financially driven, but I think that second piece, what you said, I think there is a lot of around certain groups that want to spread misinformation. Certainly we've seen that in the past with certain um, situations. And um, so I do think that that is part of it for sure is the site is groups of people like, okay. And, and maybe sometimes they're just like so caught up in their own misunderstanding of the world and they're just sharing that um i think that's really to me i think there's a lot of avenues right it's the the money and then it's these other situations i think all the ones you mentioned are probably valid and to me that just points back to like this really complicated information landscape that we live in all the time we're like swimming in it and i don't even think we even realize it or pay attention to that, the fact that that might even be happening, right? We're getting caught up in that emotional content and not even noticing that like, this could be financially driven or it could be, like you said, trolls that are just literally trying to get their point across or their um, platform or whatever it is. And so I think there's so many scenarios and we're just not sometimes paying, even paying attention to the fact that that might happen. Um, and that's, again, that's a lot of what, I'm talking about in my book is trying to really help people slow down and just like notice what's happening. Even if you can't name it all, or you don't know if it's a troll or not, or if it's financially driven, you don't necessarily have to know that. But if you can notice that something feels off, then you can actually figure out how you want to respond to it. Well, like for example, um, 
somebody on Facebook recently, you know, reposted this thing about, you know, Michael Jordan distancing himself from Nike because of uh, a lack of uh, shared values and had something to do with, um, you know, uh, transgenderism or whatever. And I just saw it and it just did not pass the smell test immediately Googled it. And it was like, yep, this is garbage, to, you know, kind of thing. And I just like, why don't people make that first step just to check before they post something like that? You know what I mean? Um, what, what, uh, I mean, I, I know, I know what's incentivizing the person who shared it to share it, but, uh, but the creation of it is like, so obviously I, I don't even know if, if, if delusion is the best explanation, I think it's trolling, you know, in that case, anyways, at least I, I suspect that, but, but yeah. Um, why don't we make that first step? Uh, what, what, why, why do, why is our first step to post rather than check? I think because we're probably human beings, <laughs> um, and we all have our, our biases, right? I feel like that's one area where I think there's also a lot of research happening around the psychology behind misinformation. Um, and also not an area that I feel like I, I'm not a psychologist, but from what I have read and how I prepared for my book was just like really trying to learn about that because I think we all have our inherent, inter, you know, whether they're implicit or explicit biases, we have these things. And I think as human beings, we're so quick to be like, oh, well, that that seems great, of course, or like outrage, right? Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. And so then we respond out of that emotion. Um, and don't take, like you said, don't take that time to just be like, wait, that doesn't seem right. And so sometimes I like tell people, like, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Or if it sounds too terrible to be true, it might be, you know? And so like, it's just, I think it's, we're human beings and we just are in a culture that's like, go, 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 click share and move on. Right. And so we just don't have the tool set I think sometimes the emotional intelligence to just slow down and say, Hey, this seems a little weird. And, and we're used to using some of our emotional intelligence tool sets in our physical spaces, right? We might, I think sometimes human beings are, if we're paying attention to ourselves, we might notice like, Oh, I'm getting really upset because when this person walks in my office or something, but we might not be noticing the parallels in our online environment. And so that's, a lot of what I think about is like, how do we take some of our tools that we use in our physical spaces and bring them into our online spaces because we're living more and more of our lives online. And so how can we recognize that we still need these things, um, that emotional intelligence in that space as well? Rachel, this is just such great stuff that we're hearing. And uh, one thing that I'm curious to, to know is um, just in terms of your own experience, have you or maybe in your writing or any sort of um, anything that you've experienced, have you noticed in terms of um, just uh, how culture plays into how fake news and how misinformation is spread and the and the impact it has? Uh, for example, in um, as someone who's Asian American, um, a lot of times uh, we are a lot of times we're a little bit more careful because with in terms of how we ought to share things because. Um, if we share things that if we share something that's incorrect, not only will it affect me as an individual, um, as we see in the immediate, but also my parents or someone who they you know multi generations or people within my community uh, actually feel it. Yeah, so even though I'm not I'm not a voice for the for my community, I'm not a voice for my parents. 
Um, but just culturally, um, we kind of have that communal type of um, shame that can come with that. So um, can you just share about any of your experience that you may have uh, with, with um, how culture um, plays into um, maybe a different perspective of uh, fake news and, um, and just sharing of information? Yeah, I think that's a, a really important thing for us to think about. Um, I have a background in intercultural studies and community development. Um, when I was getting my master's degree, I focused on community informatics, which is also sort of in this vein of community development and like using information in relation to communities and community building. Um, and then I also had the opportunity to live overseas for a while in East Africa. And I was really a Honestly, I was very cognizant when I was writing this book that I was writing from my own background as like a white middle-class woman, right? Like I knew that there were other ways of engaging with information. And I've thought a lot about that, even with um, our friends that live in Uganda, um, we're still connected to them and um, they've been like, oh, you're writing a book. We want a copy of it. And I've literally thought like, does this book translate to their culture? And I don't know um, because I am not there right now. Their information landscape has changed as well. So um, I don't know if this exactly answered your question, but I think there is something that we need to consider. And it's something that I've been thinking a lot about in terms of, I can send this book to them and that's great. And I think some of it will translate to them around this idea of, of being aware, but some of it might not. And um, I have wondered, multiple times, like what would it be like to talk with them about their experience of information? I know the ways in which they access information have has also changed in the last, you know, decade, right? And because I lived in Uganda 10 years ago, and I know just from keeping in touch with those friends, the way they engage with information is different. Um, when I was there, it was very much again, this was 10 years ago, it was very much about the physical newspaper. So we would often talk about physical newspapers and it was very um, open, like which newspaper was from which perspective and who published what. And I don't know if that's still the case because it's been a long time since I've been there. And I suspect there are other cultures and groups that it's the same thing where that that um, cultural piece could really make a difference in how they view misinformation and how it perpetuates. And so, yeah, I all that to say, I think it's very complicated. And I, I think there are other ways that people engage and that we need to be aware of. And I don't know if some of my thoughts there, I, again, I was really cognizant of like, this is my perspective. And I don't know if it's going to answer everything for everyone. And that was really hard for me to wrestle with because I like, I want to help everyone. Um, but I don't know that I can. And, um, and then the other piece kind of relating to your question around how misinformation spreads one of the other things I do mention briefly in my book and something I have started spending more time with is looking at how algorithms um, control so much of what we see and are very help, help, I don't know if help's the right word, but they make our online spaces very personalized and how a lot of those algorithms have so much bias built into them. Um, so there's a book um, called Algorithms of Oppression um, that looks at that. Um, also, there's some documentaries, one um, about, I think it's called Coded Bias, right? So there are a lot of people doing research around these spaces and these personalization um, of our social media and our online spaces and how there is bias in those spaces um, towards certain groups of people. And so that's another thing I have been 
definitely paying attention to and researching and and trying to learn more about because I think that that also plays an impact in what we're seeing. And if we're see if we're seeing different things and there are these biases in what we're seeing online, then we're all going to be living in different realities, and that can't be helpful for us either um, in terms of how we engage with people around us. Thanks for that. And one thing uh, that you mentioned at the very tail end, and I kind of want to pivot to this, is um, just the rise of artificial intelligence. Um, you know, we could say chat GPT, generative AI, and all these other things, natural language processing and stuff. Um, just wanted to get, you know, from the last time you were on the pod until now, uh, just wanted to get uh, your just take in terms of, you know, how um, how AI has now um, uh made this even more complex. Uh, just give us a brief summary, uh, survey of what you've seen. I'd love to hear, we'd love to hear that. Yeah, this is certainly something a lot of people are talking about. Um, you know, I, my full-time role is in higher education in, in an academic library. And so we are definitely hearing a lot about this from our faculty. Um, and then of course, in the library world as well, um, it's certainly a, I mean, it's a big thing, right? Like if, if there are platforms out there that can create content, certainly makes navigating it even more complicated. I approach all of this with my training as a librarian and looking at it from like the information side. And so I'm thinking all the time about, okay, what is this going to do to the information people are seeing, my students, um, the people that I'm working with, with churches, right? Um, and one of the things Obviously, we're seeing things around students that are using ChatGPT and other AI platforms to create content, right? Like there's so much conversation around students' papers or projects, you know, being written by artificial intelligence. Um, but the other thing we're seeing, at least from my um, vantage point as a librarian, is we're seeing people use ChatGPT or other platforms to do research. So we have had students reach out to us and say, I'm trying to find this citation. I can't find it, like where's the article? And then throughout the conversation, we figure out that it's not a real citation and it was given to them by ChatGPT. So, you know, we're, and I'm sure you all work in education too. I'm sure you're starting to see this as well. And so as a librarian, I think the piece that I'm, I'm really paying attention to is how, again, how do we help people evaluate what they see? So, okay, you're gonna use ChatGPT, you're gonna get these citations, whatever. But like, let's talk about how you evaluate whether or not you can figure out if it's true or like a real citation, a real piece of information. And I think that's going to get harder and harder um, and as things get more accurate. Um, but certainly that's one thing we're, I'm seeing in my profession is just people using those tools to find information and then not knowing how to evaluate it um, or not having the skill set to actually say like, okay, just because you have a citation or a title of an article how do you find, like, how do you go back and then find that information um, and do that sort of, in academia, we call it like citation chasing, um, but it's this idea of like, how do you navigate through these different kind of rabbit trails of information and how do you know if they're connected? And I think um, tools like AI are just going to make that more and more difficult because it's harder to tell where they came from. Yeah, one thing that I um, I had the opportunity to talk to um, our faculty as, um, you know, when ChatGPT just like went for free and then just kind of just exploded into the world. And um, it's and, you know, it, it's safe to say that things like ChatGPT, you know, 
did you know did exist formerly it's just it just didn't have maybe the the media hype or maybe coupled with the social media sharing right it just didn't it it, it didn't have that kind of powered with it i mean whether it's um using our photo apps that we have on our phones and um it can you know i have a, a uh, one of those smart home hubs where, uh, hey, I just want to see a gallery or a, a slideshow of of my of me, my spouse, and my dog. Right? You select those, and then it curates a essentially a a, a photo slideshow gallery playlist um, as we're doing the dishes or as we're cooking or something, and um, and that itself is one form of artificial intelligence, and. Um, it's always gone to the point where we've used it to, um, sure, it's convenient, as you've mentioned, time and time again, but at the same time, um, we also see there's the detriment of it as well, whether it's in, um, whether it's for our psych our psychos, whether it's for our professional development um, in academia. Um, so, and well, so one thing I'm... I don't even know where to go from here because it's just so big and so wide. And uh, I know that there's so many people kind of uh, they're writing about it. And, you know, most, most recently um, there was an article that was released where um, someone, I guess uh, there's an instructor who uh, actually took students essays, put it back into chat GPT to do the um, like the plagiarism or not plagiarism check, but like the check to see if the AI, if, the, the the likelihood that this essay was written by an AI. <laughs> and um, I guess the, the there was a wrong call with that, just like how you were saying about citations, how there was um, there was an incorrect citation, there was an incorrect statistic that was there as well. And, you know, now on one hand, there's a lot of fear to that. And um, I wanted to kind of get your, your, your thoughts as we uh, kind of uh, maybe close off our conversation about the AI, about AI and everything, because I'm sure we can spend so much time on this as well. Um, but, you know, in the midst of this being now rampant, I guess, and we're going to move in and we are moving into an Asian era of, um, of this being more and more incorporated into our lives, you know, whether we try to stop it, you know, via law or bill um, or not, uh, what are some of your encouragements for just the everyday listener, someone who may not be as tech savvy or something, or even for those who are tech savvy? I mean, what, what what's your encouragement as you have talked to students and faculty, and even in, in even in your in your publication um, uh, uh, experience? Uh, what's some encouragement you have for our listeners? Yeah, I think you bring up some really good points in terms of what we're seeing around them. You know, there's so much media hype that it does seem like people are like really freaked out about this and like really like very stressed. Um, and I think I think the piece that I keep coming back to is like, yes, this is important. And yes, we need to pay attention to it. Um, but it kind of it reminds me of you know, in academia, it was like the Wikipedia conversation of 15 years ago. Um, so when Wikipedia first started, everyone was like all worked up about Wikipedia. Anybody could edit these pages. And they're like, you know, you shouldn't use them in your, you couldn't trust it, right? Like this like sense of like not being able to trust Wikipedia. And so I think of it that way a little bit in terms of like, this is important. This is something to pay attention to. Um, and we should be paying attention to it. 
but it's here. And I don't think denying that these things are happening to your point, we are using AI in a lot of ways already. And so recognizing that, that like, this is the reality that we live in. And also one thing, again, that I thought was so helpful when I was researching for my book was just knowing that conspiracy theories have been around a long time. Misinformation has been around a long time. I kind of see this in that vein too. Like there has always been the next thing that has kind of created these like explosive, like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do about this moments? And this is the next one. And so I guess I feel less, maybe less concerned than, I don't know that I should, but I don't, I feel like this is important and we should pay attention to it and we don't need to panic. And as people of faith, right? Like that's also something for us to think about. Like we are people of faith. Like where is our, like, do we need to get caught up in this, this hype or are there ways for us to model a little bit more peace maybe is the word. I'm not, I'm not even sure what the right word would be, but like model a little bit different way of living and getting sucked into the hype about the latest controversy might not be a great witness, but finding ways to engage more meaningfully about it and more calmly and more measured could be maybe a way for us to, to, to demonstrate a different way of living around this or a lot of topics. (laughs) So I think, you know, um, we can have a conversation about strategies and, you know, what, what are some good ways to approach, um, being on the internet, but, um, why shouldn't we just cut it out completely and go, you know, cold Turkey and just say, you know what, it's not worth it. Um, so what about approaching it from the other perspective? Why is it worthwhile to even try and, you know, do it appropriately in the first place? Yeah. I've thought about that a lot actually, because I grew up in a um, Christian tradition that focused a lot more on sort of that, I don't know if it stems from like purity culture or abstinence culture, but like if something is bad, you shouldn't like pay attention to it. Right. Like, and, and so that's kind of the tradition I kind of come from. And as I've worked through this process of creating these workshops and writing this book, um, it didn't feel like enough, right? Like to just say like, oh no, for me, it didn't feel like enough to just say like, well, I'll just ignore that. Also, it's my profession to pay attention to information. Um, it seems like it's really important for us as people of faith to to know what's happening in the world and to know about the things that are happening in the news and current events and to be aware of them and to be um, educated about them. And, and if we're not engaging at all with social media, if we say, no, I'm going to cut that out completely, which some people do. And that that's maybe where they feel called. Um, I don't think that can give us a pass on paying attention to what's happening in the world. And so this is how we get our information. This is how our culture is right now. And so what is, I guess my bigger question has been for the church is how do we do this in a meaningful way? And how do we give people tools to do it well? Um, As opposed to saying like, oh, let's just ignore it. How can we be a witness and pay attention to what's happening in the world? And yeah, give people the tools to do it. I think that was sort of what sparked this for me to begin with was just thinking through like, do people have the ability to do this? And if they don't, they're going to back out. And then we're not part of the conversation at all. (laughs) And we're not, you know, present in these spaces. And I guess that's been my question the whole time is how can we as the church be present 
in our online spaces in the same way we are in our physical spaces, because our online spaces, I just don't, I mean, I guess we could not be on them, but I just don't see that. To me, it's just unrealistic, which is, is, is just kind of where I land on that. And, and just wanting to help people think about like, maybe there are different ways, right? And because I think we can be in this black and white place of like all in or all out, but maybe there's a middle path that says I can engage mindfully and carefully and productively without just being like, okay, I'll be all in on this crazy stuff and be overwhelmed. Or on the other side, I'll just say no to it all the way. Where could we find the middle path? And that's kind of where I feel like I'm, that's been my approach. What's in your work with churches? Um, I'm curious to know what's been one of like the biggest, um, I guess, talking points uh, regard related to fake news and misinformation that um, you've had to kind of tackle I mean I think there are some obvious ones that I can probably guess which I'll give you I'll, I'll give you the honors to present those but um and and more importantly uh what's been some of the um I, I'm not sure if there's a solution but what is what what are some snippets that you've been able to provide for the church to equip them to uh tackle you know these issues there are so many questions when I talk to churches <laughs> But I think the biggest thing that ultimately comes out of all of this is probably, yes, there are questions about how do I know if this is true? How do I know what to trust? Do I know if that person's, you know, how do I know that that person's an expert? There are always questions like that. Those are like technical questions. The two things that I feel like keep coming up is that personalization that I mentioned before. And talking through that with folks around if you see, see different things online than your family member your friend whoever you disagree with if you are literally seeing different information about xyz topic how might that impact your relationship and that is something that we i talk about with churches because i don't know that that would come up <laughs> actually i don't know that people would necessarily connect those two things and that just feels so important to me and then from that the thing that always comes up when i work with churches is how do i talk to people how do i love people how do i care about them how do i have these conversations um and granted i'm working with churches that are you know asking me to be there and there are people who are wanting to be in that space. Um, so I, I recognize that they're self-selecting to, to talk through this. Um, but that's the piece that I think really surprised me when I first started this three years ago, four years ago, kind of working with churches and, and creating this content is how much people just generally want to have good conversations with the people they love, right? That it comes down to the relationship piece of this and the technical pieces are important but it's the relationship piece that I feel like is the one that keeps circling back. Like, I feel like so-and-so in my life believes misinformation. What do I do? Um, I feel like we, we don't agree on things. What do I do? Um, and so that's where I have landed over and over again as the biggest piece out of all of this is that the, the relational piece and how do we go through this um, in a way that is about people and not just about the technical, oh, checklist, you checked these things. Um, 
And now you know that it's fake or true or whatever. Uh, but how do we engage in a better way with our the people we care about? Yeah, I, th- I feel like with a lot of these uh, types of conversations, one of the things that comes up a lot is, you know, free speech, and especially in American context, First Amendment, you know, is going to get tossed around. And, um, you know, s- sometimes um, uh, this is just a way to advocate for, you know, the free flow of ideas, but uh, oftentimes it just seems a way of saying, you know, uh, like justifying misinformation or something like that. And it seems like, you know, especially with COVID, the the kind of danger of that was really kind of at the forefront with a lot of people just spouting out you know nonsense about how to ad- address this issue and and you know from like my vantage point it's like well I, I want that stuff taken down because I want you know to get through the pandemic and I want people to be safe but but people who are on the other side you know they of course view it as you know like shutting down ideas not allowing the free flow of ideas it's it's you know curtailing first amendment stuff and it's like so tricky with something that's like like dangerous you know like like with the pandemic um with covid and uh just curious about like how how to how to think about misinformation when it's when it's dangerous and when like it can um be a matter of life or death yeah i think certainly the the first amendment rights adds a whole nother layer here in the united states that may not be in other parts of the world um and that's something that's really hard. Um, and that's something that I, I kind of talk about in my book as well is like, how do we engage with people on these topics when there are, th- there are legitimate things that we can't just say like, oh, well, it's okay. <laughs> um, and as a person that is so focused on you know, in the end, I'm, I I generally in my book and in my workshops, I'm not advocating for one news source or another or one platform. I'm really hoping to give people tools to think a little bit more critically. And that is hard because there are things where I think, you know, there isn't there. We, we need to look at what the truth says or what the science says or whatever it is. And I don't think that gives us a pass, like having a, a staying in relationship with people doesn't give us a pass at saying hard things. And um, that is one of the other things I talk about in in the book is like, we, we don't, we don't have a pass to be rude. We don't have a pass to say misinformation, but we also don't have a pass to just let everybody always get away with believing all these things. And I think that that's where we can also have a little bit different point of view as people of faith. Um, You know, Christians, most a lot of denominations i think like have this emphasis on listening to the holy spirit so there's that piece but also just noticing like is this the time to bring it up right is this the time to bring up the hard things and to talk to someone about it and maybe it is and maybe it isn't um but yeah i don't think we get a pass at on addressing those things, even though I think relationships are really important. And also that first amendment piece is really complicated because it makes people feel like, well, do they get to say that because of that? Or there's the other side, which is people like, I get to say this because I have a first amendment, right? Um, And then you get into all those topics. I think we're also seeing on social media around um, like censorship, right? Like, oh, they're they're blocking accounts or they're not letting so-and-so have an account. And and I think part of what makes it so complicated is that we have we have muddled all of those things. The First Amendment was written a long time before there was social media. And now we have all these social media platforms and they are 
again, these are companies that are trying to make money. Um, and so there's like, it's just, we've layered all these things together. And I think it's created a really tangled information landscape that's really hard to separate. Um, that first amendment piece, the social media piece, the conspiracy theory piece, the misinformation piece. And so suddenly we've crammed them all into one space. And so then it becomes really hard for people to navigate. You know, what are some healthy ways we can we can create spaces within these gray areas? Uh, what have you seen to be effective, um, you know, whether in the church or, or in, let's say, an academic, you know, space? Um, I'd love to hear kind of some ideas as we kind of think, as we, as we move towards, um, you know, some light in the midst of a lot of the things we've talked, we've been talking about. Yeah, you're right. I think there's, it's really hard. And I think that sometimes this can feel really heavy. Um, people are often surprised to hear that I get really energized talking about all of these things, even though for a lot of people, they're really overwhelming. Um, one time I was, I was doing one of my workshops and we were talking about those gray spaces that you just mentioned. And, um, I was, I was talking about how I think in a lot of our, our, in a lot of the real world situations we hear about, there's a lot of gray space, the media and people might want us to think they're black and white, but I was talking about how a lot of these situations that we might read about in the news have a lot of gray and the truth I mean, I like to say the truth of any situation is probably in the middle on a lot of things. Um, and when I was talking about these gray spaces in this class, this workshop, somebody was like, I'm sorry, are you saying gray spaces or grace spaces? And I've thought about that a lot since then. And I, I kind of come back to that a lot. Like, this is really heavy and it's really hard and it's really overwhelming. And also there's a lot of grace. And I guess I have to keep coming back to how do I give myself grace when I'm navigating? Maybe I accidentally share something that's not true. How do I give myself grace and how I navigate that? How do I give grace to other people? Um, again, that doesn't mean we don't hold them accountable, but how do we do it in a way that involves giving grace to them? Um, I think about the relationships I have in my life where we don't always agree on a current events or a current issue. Um, and how do I give grace to that? And, and, and that, again, that doesn't mean we don't hold someone accountable or we don't have a hard conversation, but how do we give grace? And so that's been one thing I've, I've thought about a lot since that happened. Um, and then the other thing that I, I don't know if this will be encouraging to your listeners or not, but another, I tell this story in the book and it's another thing I think about a lot is that another time I was doing a workshop and we're, you know, we're talking about all these hard things. Like, how do you have a hard conversation with someone? How do you know if something's true? Or how do you navigate when you have all these feeds coming at you? And someone said, you know, as Christians, we want to, sometimes we want to just sit at the feet of Jesus and be the sheep and just listen to his voice. But this is where the rubber meets the road. And this is where our faith gets lived out is doing these hard things. And to me, that's, that is encouraging in the sense that like, it's not that we're just doing these things to do them, right? We're not going to have a hard conversation just to have a hard conversation. We're not going to like look for the truth of a situation just to do it. It's because 
there's growth opportunities there. When, whenever we have a hard conversation, whenever we're humble enough to say, I actually got that story wrong. I, I shared before I shouldn't like, that's a humility thing. And there's growth that can happen there. And I think if we can see some of the, our engagement in these platforms as a discipleship opportunity, as a chance to say, this is a growth opportunity for us. I think that that gives it more purpose than just being like, oh, this is overwhelming or, oh, well, but saying like, is there space for intentionality and growth to happen in these spaces? Even our online spaces, even our information spaces, can we find growth and discipleship and becoming more like Jesus? Then there's purpose in it. And we can maybe as people of faith engage a little bit differently. Yeah, that makes me wonder as uh, as a kind of final question to uh, conclude our conversation uh, about how we can reclaim our witness. Um, you know, I think about fake news in general, and I think you know we're all we're all um, affected by it in different ways. But I wonder if uh, Christians aren't uniquely um, implicated um, in at least at least in terms of broader cultures' uh, perspective, perhaps because you know if you think about a lot of the conspiracy theories, fake news type things, you know, you can kind of associate it perhaps with a certain, you know, political segment that, you know, is identified with evangelicalism or something like that. And just at least by association, uh, Christians can get uh, lumped in, uh, even if they're not, you know, personally contributing to the perpetuation of fake news. But I'm just wondering, as we think about this, whether or not we, you know, um, have things to, um, to work on personally, these grace spaces that you're talking about, um, what are what are some ways that we can reclaim our witness uh, to where um, you know our message isn't just dubbed fake news by association? Yeah, I think that I mean at the end of the day, that's kind of what it's kind of about. Um, and I think I think to your point, you know, as I've talked about this with people who maybe don't have a faith background, I, I can't even tell you the number of people that are like, you do workshops at churches on misinformation. Like what? Like they don't like literally are, you can just see the wheels in their head turning. Like this doesn't make sense um, because they aren't associating those two things together. They're not associating people of faith with this, like, I'm going to, I'm going to address misinformation. <laughs> They're associating those two in a negative way, not a positive thing. And so I think you're right. I think there, that this is something that we as a church need to wrestle with and say, how do we, how do we bring that witness? And I don't know if I know the answer yet. Um, but I do think I, I, I have to believe that it comes from this being countercultural online um, choosing to slow down and not share things without checking them, choosing to not comment on something when we're angry, um, choosing to share truth and not, and to actually know if it's true, like, and, and don't share if you don't know. <laughs> um, and so I think that there's a lot of things that we can do just personally and then corporately, um, finding ways to respond. You know, I just think of how all churches responded so differently to COVID and how that was so divisive and in, in all of that. And so like, how can we have these hard conversations? Cause that would be a, such a strong witness if we could model paying attention to what's true in our world, whether it's from a scientific perspective or intellectual or whatever. And also just having those hard conversations, like that would also be a witness, right. To like, show that we can have different views on certain things 
not things that are really true, but do you know what I mean? Like certain things where there could be a difference of opinion and being able to still engage kindly with each other. I think kindness is really missing from a lot of these um, conversations. And so to me, a lot of it is humility, um, knowing when we get it wrong and being okay to say that, and then being kind with how we engage with other people. And unfortunately, those are words I don't think are always associated with the church from other people. And so how, how can we do that? I think it happens individually. I think it happens collectively and it's, and it's hard, <laughs> but I think that's how, that's one way we could have a witness is to, to do things in a countercultural way. Um, and that involves how we engage with people. It, to me, it all comes down to people. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's great. That's great. Thank you so much for, for joining us for, for your time and, uh, for this book. I hope everybody, uh, checks it out. Faith and fake news, uh, with Erdman's. Thank you so much for having me. 